Flavor Flav. <laughs> I'm excited, man. Freaking two all-stars right here. This is the first time we've, we've both talent. been in the room. Man. Yeah, we just probably... You guys are the talent. Both. We're just here hanging out. <sighs> it's good stuff. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are we good, Eli? Cool. Test one. Good levels. We're, we're all good. You want to take it off? All you, buddy. All me? Well, today... Four, four out of four. T- today. T- t- yeah, today's been a long day, but this is by far the... the uh, podcast i've been looking forward to the most as i think a lot of us have in this room and unfortunately the people that are listening don't get to see what we're looking at but we're looking at a fine bottle of whiskey on the table with some tasting glasses around it and the folks on youtube will be able to watch this um but across the table from me we have mike kellogg who is cwa's volunteer veteran hunt program coordinator we have jeff smith who is the co-host and then mike if you want to introduce our other guest for me and kind of talk about how you guys got got in touch with each other yeah buddy uh across from me i've got chris koenig uh founder of golden beaver distillery and chris and i have uh, become pretty good buddies it's kind of an interesting story the way that uh, the relationship developed um it was was it veteran weekend or is probably it yeah. might have been veteran weekend how many years ago two two, two and, and a half okay so recent yeah, yeah probably two recent. years ago um and I reached out to a buddy because it was one of those things where we were getting people like canceling left and right. Yeah. Right? We had to fill a spot. <laughs> Every year. Yeah. <laughs> and veteran like, weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Stop that. Yeah. Fun weekend. And one of the busiest weekends ever for the veteran hunt program. And uh, reached out, and there's a guy that I was turned on to, Chris Koenig and his son Nils Koenig. They went out, had no idea who they were, never heard of them before. Uh, they went on a hunt with Mike Collins. Mm-hmm. With Mike Collins at Moon Lake Duck Club. And... I don't remember what they shot. I think they had an all right shoot. We did. We did two straps in about an hour and a half. Oh, nice. Well, it was a good hunt. It was a good hunt. Some cool pictures from that day, too. Yeah. 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 And I get a phone call afterwards saying, Hey, thanks for the hunt. Really appreciate it. My name's Chris Koenig, and I want to get involved with your CWA veteran hunt program. And I'm like, Okay, cool. Right on. On, uh, you know, what caliber? What do you got going on? And, he explained to me Golden Beaver Distillery, and uh, then he said, I want to talk to your boss. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, that's Jeff Smith. So uh, I got you in touch with Jeff Smith, and then uh, the rest is history. I mean, the partnership and our relationship back and forth has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great. It's yeah, been it's great. Stuff. And that, that was uh, about two weekends before my son deployed. That's right. Uh, and his uh, third deployment. So it's really important hunt. Awesome. Wow, how special is that? That's awesome. So what did you do, Jeff, once you took over from from the communications? Yeah, so basically we're just kind of talking about the the partnership, right? And and you guys were wanting to kind of have a bottle that the proceeds went back to the Veteran Hunt Program and putting our logo on it. And uh, so myself and Mike Peters went and toured the distillery there in Chico and uh, tasted a lot what you had. And we and Mike were joking afterwards in the parking lot. We're like, I didn't taste anything that I didn't like. And I was like, I know you get, it could be dangerous in there. And, um, but it was just kind of eye opening to me, just the whole bottling process. You guys are making everything there and just kind of how much work goes into the craft. Um, I just found that extremely interesting. And, but you've been at it for a long time. Well, we started in 19 as far as a distillery, but prior to that, 
I may or may not have uh, been <laughs> moonshining in my garage yeah. <laughs> to, to develop the recipes. Right. So, and what's the difference between some of the stuff that you guys are using in terms of ingredients? Well, we were one of the only three of us in the country that actually use rice in their bourbon. And I'm the only one, I think, that does a full rice whiskey. So uh, it's very unique. And we just uh, found out just before I went to the airport to pick up Ron here uh, that we uh, got a gold medal from the John Barleycorn Society. Congratulations. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Good That's stuff. awesome. So uh, we got a, we'll put a little gold sticker on it next week. Right on. Oh, yeah. Congrats. Cool. Now, is that a, like a Cal Rose? What are you guys using? It's Cal for? Rose. Okay. So Cal Rose and Cal Rose Rice Malt. We have one of the only uh, rice maltsters in the country, or the only rice maltster in the country, in Chico. So it's all homegrown. Was that the idea to make it a local business, use local uh, products, you know, that yes. are, that's great. Yeah. The idea is to keep carbon footprint really low, keep it down and, uh, you know, make something that speaks to the area and rice is it. And, and you guys give back to a lot of different other nonprofits that are local as well. There's, uh, I had uh, Marysville, Police Officer Association is picking up a case right now for their dinner. That's great. So so when you were starting in your garage, may or may not have been making moonshine, did you anticipate this becoming a future business for you, or did it just kind of fall into your lap? No, so I was a, I was a filmmaker at the time, okay. and my brother uh, is was in, in Ho Chi Minh City. He uh, runs a couple of businesses out of there, and he came home to visit my parents, and came over to the house and I had a small one liter uh, cask that I had filled some bourbon in rice bourbon. And, um, he, uh, you know, we opened it up, you know, typical, you know, we, you don't drink alone. You always drink with somebody. And, um, so, um, you know, I poured him a a glass and he took two tastes and he goes, we're not going to business. That's where it started. Okay. Right on. So. And it seems like it's kind of exploded from, from there. I mean, I just saw Mike Kellogg's post about you guys being in Costco's now. Well, ABC rules restricts me from saying that because yeah. I cannot promote a retailer, but yes, we are, uh, we're expanding across, uh, this area. There'll be two more, uh, warehouses in, uh, Sacramento Woodland area in the next okay. uh, week or so and, and onward to the Bay area. That's awesome. I've got buddies that are asking when it's coming down to the Delta area, Costco's and whatnot. So people are looking for it. Yeah, we'll have them, have them bug the managers of each warehouse. Okay. Yeah. That's how it happens. And people could also buy it online through your website? They can buy it online through our website. And, and people that are outside the state of California, in about two weeks, we're launching uh, something called MASH Networks, which is connected to a retailer in Washington, D.C., which has shipping rights to 48 states. So yeah, That's awesome. great. And just to clarify... The bottle that is going back to the Veteran Hunt Program is just this bottle that's in front of us, Just correct? the no, Pacific Flyway. Just yeah. the Pacific Flyway one. So if you guys are on the website and are buying it for the purpose of giving back to CWA, it is just the Pacific Flyway bottle, but he does have other stuff available for purchase. Yeah. We may expand the program. Right <laughs> <laughs> what Out of all the different ones that you make, I mean, what's the most popular in terms of, is it a whiskey, a bourbon? I know you guys it's do actually, that, that beaver liquor moonshine, which yep. I've told a bajillion people, it's like the smoothest thing you've ever tasted. <laughs> and when we were tasting it, you're like, yeah, you got to be careful with that one. I like yeah. it. It's very good. It'll sneak up on you. Yeah. 
Um, they're like my children, you know, all yeah. of our favorites. But uh, our our big seller right now with said warehouse is our Honey Run, okay. honey flavored whiskey, which is dedicated to the the uh, uh, fire, the campfire up in uh, Paradise yeah, that's that awesome. took out the bridge. Yeah, and uh, we raised forty thousand dollars for the new bridge construction oh, wow. through the sale of that bottle. Good for you guys. That's phenomenal. So, Giving back to the community. Uh, but it's really good. It makes a perfect old-fashioned. So if you like old fashions after your hunt, oh, yeah. you know, it's a good one to pick up. Um, the Flyway, I got to tell you, it's it's a great sipper. Yeah, we're seeing it a lot of, like, duck clubs that we go visit. It's it's in the cabinet, you know, and I good. think obviously that we're tied to it is great. But I think you just look at the logo as a duck hunter. Got the snow geese out there, Pacific Flyway. It's just a cool-looking bottle, right? Yeah. yeah. There's a lot going on in that label. Yeah. Because the, the reason we're called Golden Beaver is that in 1800, uh, the estimate number of Golden Beaver in the Upper Sac Valley was about 3 million. So you got to kind of look at the terrain and kind of imagine what it was like. Um, the flyway took, you know, millennia to build. Yeah. And that flyway was supported by the beavers and those beaver ponds. So if you look at the label, there's a Golden Beaver on every label we have, links back to that. That's awesome. So it, we wouldn't have the flyway if it wasn't for the beaver. Yeah. No, I think it's a great tie-in, and uh, I just think it's a unique bottle label. And as a, a duck hunter, seeing seeing an organization that's giving back to local causes and the conservation, that just makes you something that you want to support. You know, Thanks. Not everyone's doing that. So thank you Appreciate so much that. for that. Well, well, you can thank my wife for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the company launched in a car. Uh, we were driving back from uh, our cabin in Colorado, <clears throat> and it's an 18-hour road trip. We just do it in one take. We don't stop and yeah. waste time, just drive home. Because you end up being at a hotel, and you wake up, shit, I could have been home already, yeah, right? right? So it's like, let's just drive. And so <clears throat> we were kicking around the idea of the distillery, and we drove by a liquor store in uh, Saratoga, Wyoming. And that liquor store is called Beaver Liquors, but it's... Uh, the the French spelling of liquor, the, the actual spelling. And I said, yeah, let's do L-I-K-K-E-R and do a moonshine. And she said, you will not. <laughs> and we started this argument from Saratoga to Rock Springs. It's about a four-hour drive. And the argument went from calm discussions to just top of the lungs screaming at each other. And so we... We kind of cooled down about about an hour outside of Rock Springs. She goes, well, when I used to work up at the museum in Paradise, there was this beaver called the Golden Beaver. And she's told me the story about the impact of the beaver in the area and its demise by the Hudson Bay Company. Uh, didn't want the U.S. in the fur trade. So starting about 1829, uh, they started to send down 200 trappers and their families every year. And they would start at the Oregon border. It started in Oregon, and then they worked their way down, and it was a scorched-earth policy. They took every fur-bearing animal they could, and the idea was to decimate our our fur trade, and we wouldn't go into the fur trade. Well, of course, the golden beavers, that, that three million golden beavers got wiped. Uh, not to extinction, but they got hit really hard. Mm -hmm. And I really wonder what, the, what it was like for the migration in those that last half of— of 1800s until the early part of the 1900s when uh, UC Davis said, hey, rice could be grown here and created the rice thing. 
Yeah. Because there wasn't, there wasn't the beaver ponds. There wasn't any refuges, you know. So the ducks, you know, it was like I saw dry earth, you know. They're just coming and eating off the ground. They, yeah. weren't, they weren't nesting. They weren't doing anything. So, Have you been a waterfowl hunter in California your whole life? Uh, yes. Uh, waterfowl hunting um, didn't, I didn't get turned on to it until about 10 years ago. Oh, okay. I mean, I was, I was a hunter, did a little pheasant. I grew up in Elk Grove. We had pheasant down there, occasional pheasant hunting there. Then, of course, I went on and did my adult career. It took me out of the state. And um, about, about the time I started getting into writing that, the film Assaulted Civil Rights Under Fire, I said, you know, I'm missing out. I mean, I need to get out there. There's so much great hunting in California, and uh, I need to be doing it. So um, got into it, got a dog. The dog, um, I still have her. She's a great dog. She was gun shy, mm-hmm. so I bred her and uh, ended up with my dog, Rio. You've yeah, never... Rio's a great dog. And so, um, the, uh, the, my, you know, the progress of going from training a dog, getting him trained up, you know, doing a lot of pheasant hunting, doing a lot of duck hunting, um, you know, all came together. You know, you can't do, I honestly don't think you duck hunt without a dog, you know, and you need to have that. It's the experience, it's the experience that brings it all together. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. Without a dog, it, it's not, it's not the full circle, right? I mean, right. Yeah, it's great, but when you have a dog there, man, even if it's a slow day, it's just, I don't know, you're loving on your buddy. If, and, yeah, if you're out there by yourself, if you have no dog, you're just sitting there. Yeah, hanging out, the sky. hanging out with your best friend, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, and you need a critic when you're in the blind, too. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. You've got two or three labs? We have four now. Oh, four geez. labs, that's right. Yeah, I just we just rescued a lab that was a CNI school dropout, mm-hmm. and... Um, and get them out of a stupid stage and start working them. Yeah. You know, it's much easier to train, I think. I mean, there's there's probably people listening to this that are better trainers, have a lot more knowledge. But I don't I think the best way to train a dog is having another dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's so. there's there's definitely that where you have the older dog that you're starting to phase out, and then you have the younger one year olds and they learn, you know, and know what's going on. I think it helps out um, yeah. personally, you know, but yeah. that's not always the case because some older dogs don't necessarily like younger dogs around so it could be hard but yeah i agree with you they yeah. do learn from each other learn well, the good habits and the bad habits yeah <laughs> so rio's mom is jojo and she got gun shy early on and she didn't want to be around it so i was training rio at a launcher and she didn't like the fact he was getting the dummy you know and so she started chasing and so we started out it'd be she'd be 30 yards away and slowly moved in and moved in. And by the end of that summer, she was right in on it. And we took her out and she wasn't going to shine anymore. Oh, huh. worked it out. Good. Worked it out. That's great. Like reverse psychology for the dog. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now, how old is the dog that this, the dropout? Uh, the dropout is a year. Okay. And that's still, and, that's young. He's yeah, super young. And young. We're, we're slowly doing the retrieve. We do, we do slow retrieves in the house every night, you know, and just throw a dummy and they go out and they come back and they come out. You know, and Rio just walks it, but he does it for an hour, hour and a half. I mean, he just wants that that interaction and yeah. engagement, and so you don't need to, you know, be in your backyard. It's yeah. just the the constant go back, and you can do a lot in your living room. I mean, I do hand signals in the living room. I'll misthrow the the dummy so he doesn't see where it ends up, and yeah, yeah. So it's all good. Yeah, definitely. So well, I think we should. 
transfer a little bit of the focus down to the bottle that's in the center of the table if we want to pour this out so we can start talking sure. about the product that we have in front of us and kind of give everybody a description of what these glasses are and what purpose they serve because these aren't your normal household glasses, I would say. No, so what you're looking at here is called a Glencairn glass. It was actually developed for tasting whiskey. And the reason why um, it's shaped like it's a chin chimney at the top is that you want all of the aromas to come up to your nose. If you have a like a rocks glass, like most of us drink our yeah. whiskey at night, um, and you put ice on it, those vapors get suppressed a little bit. And then, of course, you have this big open top and all the, the smells go away. And if you're uh, trying to smell what the whiskey is, you're trying to smell the, uh, the complexity of the spirit that was developed, um, you don't get that. So this Glencairn glass helps you do that. Had to do a pass there. Um, so this is a, a little over two-year-old whiskey, and we do it in a batch. We do a big batch so we can fill two barrels at a time. And, and how big how big are these barrels we're talking about? These are 53-gallon oak barrels. So okay. they're both uh, American oak barrels. Uh, one barrel is brand new and freshly charred. That's where we burn the inside of the, the barrel because we want to get some carbon on the inside of the barrel. It helps mellow the, the spirit down. Uh, then we toast them as well. So the toasted barrel opens up the wood. You warm it up before you burn it, and you warm up into the middle grain. Basically expand that barrel, and that creates pathways that the distillate can work into the wood. Because 80% of the taste of this whiskey is not from the rice. It's from the wood. Okay. So when you're drinking a whiskey, the color and the, the tannins that, that you get, the vanillins, so it tastes like a cookie or uh, baking spices, that all comes from the wood. It doesn't come from the, the distiller. Gotcha. And so there's, a, there's always this little battle between cooper and distiller. But we have to acknowledge that a lot of, most of the flavor comes from the wood. So we do one brand new barrel to get certain notes. We get the spices and we get the, the spicy cinnamon notes out of the new barrel. And then we use a used uh, bourbon barrel that's four to five, six-year-old bourbon barrel, let's say from Wilderness Trail or Buffalo Trace. And we fill those. And what we're trying to do there is we're trying to extract the uh, contents of that barrel that it developed over a period of time. So imagine when you dump barrel, you don't sit there for a week letting it drain. You dump a barrel, it dries out, but all that flavor is still locked in those stays. Well, alcohol is a solvent. So you put in fresh alcohol, it immediately goes into those staves and starts extracting those flavors out. So that's what creates a very complex uh, whiskey. So you'll have those, those young baking spice notes, the spice notes, and then you get into the caramels and um, more of the uh, uh, confectionery notes from the used barrel. And that's how we, that's how we do it. Very interesting. So, so what's the proper way to taste whiskey out of a glass like Any this? Any way you like. That's <laughs> my kind of man. <laughs> so if you, I'll, I'll walk you through. If you're really going to do a tasting, you want to smell it. Okay. And when you smell it, you want to open your mouth a little bit. So don't close your mouth when you smell. Bring it up. Move it around. 
smell with both your mouth and your nose at the same time. And if you want to see the effectiveness of it, close your mouth and just breathe in. And then open your mouth and breathe in and see the difference. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a lot harsher if you close your mouth and you just go straight up your nose. Exactly, because yeah, those like alcohol the vapors. Vapors, yeah. yeah. Plus the the sensors that are the your nerves that are there that create your sense of smell and taste, they're different. They're different sensors. They do different jobs. Uh, but you need them both to taste the whiskey. So, And then you take a small sip. I've been doing it wrong for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying I'm not supposed to just drink all this at once. <laughs> so, so you take a small sip because what you're doing now is your, your brain is what's doing the tasting, not your tongue. Their, their tongue and your nose are just sending signals to your brain. So you guys have had a taco for lunch, maybe a burrito, a steak, whatever you're having for lunch, you know, granola bar. Pretty benign things compared to alcohol. So your first taste is just a wake-up call to your brain. I'm going to drink this alcohol now. New set of criteria. And it resets what the brain is going to be looking for off your tongue. So... Big difference than if you just shoot it back, you're just going to get a bunch of alcohol. So you do the first one to kind of reset your palate, and then your second one is your actual taste. Okay. And then you want on that taste, you want to chew it. It's called a Kentucky chew. If you're, if you're from Kentucky and you think only whiskey and bourbon can be from Kentucky, they call it the Kentucky chew. You, can, you just want to chew it, roll it through your mouth, make sure that all of the sensors that are both on the side of your tongue and the top of your tongue are getting involved and in it. Kind of do that little back feed on the, your nose without choking yourself. You know, get a little bit of that vapor up into your nose, and you'll get the whole picture. Good shit, man. Now, your second one, it's going to be, you're going to catch a lot more flavors. I definitely noticed the more alcohol forward on the first one when you get that reset, and the second one I don't get any don't of get that. It. Yeah, right. Feel you taste all the flavor, flavorfulness of the, the entire drink in yeah. the second round. Yeah. yeah. So basically, as long as you're not switching up drinks, your palate from now on after that first sip should be registered to this Correct. drink. Correct. Okay. And so if you're going to be if you're going to do a whiskey tasting, you go in and get a flight, you're going to test at a bar somewhere. Um, you're going to want to do that. Your first one, you go through the whole flight and leave a little bit in the in the glass, so you can go back to that first one because your palate will continue to reset through the whole okay. flight, and then you may think the first one sucks, and you go back to it and go, wow, that, that oh, actually is really good. So is that really hard, like, when they are doing the judging in the contest? Yeah, what are they looking are for? They, are they actually uh, swallowing it? Because if you're, if you're drinking a bunch... No. Okay. They're, they're spitting it out. Gotcha. So, you know, I'm sure at the so end of the day... The at the end of the day, they're, I'm sure they're mostly doing the chew. Yeah. And then they spit it out. They're yeah. getting a pretty good head buzz from just spitting it out, though, I bet. Uh, you can. <laughs> 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 you know, distillers are even worse. I mean... We we walk in. Your crew's already on board. You got dis, you know distillate coming off your still. It's at 140 proof, and you we have to make cuts. We're 
the, what we mean by cuts is when do we want to collect that dissolute? Where's the good points? And those cuts, the first cut coming off of what we call the heads, um, you're getting rid of the acetyl alcohol. You're getting rid of uh, all the nasty crap, um, acetone, things like that, that you don't want to drink. If you drink cheap whiskey or you do cheap booze, that distiller is leaving that stuff in because that's, that's their goal is just, you know, get the alcohol out. Okay. But craft distillers, we we really are mindful of not giving you a headache. We're trying not to give you a headache at the end of the night. Of course, that's determined by you and your volume, <laughs> not by us. Um, so it comes off, starts at about 165 as far as proof, about 158, somewhere in there, at least for us with, the, with our rice whiskey. We'll start collecting it. And then about 138, right in there, uh, it'll start doing going to what we call the tails. And the tails is alcohol and water mix. Now, some of the tails have great flavors and most of them don't. And so there's a there's an art to stop collecting, let the tails run a little while, and then grab some more of those tails, especially if you're going to barrel the whiskey because it adds flavor. Um, and that only comes from experience, knowing, okay, that's good tails, bad tails. Um we collect all the way down through the tails, and we take the tails, and we throw them into the next batch because okay. it's still good alcohol. So. Gotcha. Does whiskey age like wine where you might have you know, a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old that's going to age well over time? Um, only in the barrel. Okay. So the minute the distiller dumps a barrel, it stops aging. So if you have a one in your cabinet. And you think you're doing good keeping it in yeah, there. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's nothing. It's, it's, it's not going to age anymore. Gotcha. It's, it's at where it's at. So um, if you're a collector of whiskey, I mean, there's people that just collect whiskey and they don't drink it. Mm-hmm. I think it's sinful. I think it's <laughs> gluttonous because you've removed that bottle out of the circulation from somebody else that can have a taste. Um, you know, I collected for, you know, prior to getting into this back when I was filmmaking, I, I had a pretty good collection. And then one day I just looked at it and said, you know, crap. This is, you know, let's just drink it. Gotta enjoy that. Bring friends over, drink it, yeah. enjoy yeah. it. Now, what about like once you pop pop the top? I mean, is there? A, It'll keep forever. Okay, is even if like bottom of the bear, bottom of the. Yeah. Because uh, I've heard that where it's like if you only have an inch or two at the bottom, hurry up and drink it. No truth to that. At no all. truth. So what you want to do is you want to make sure it's corked. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. put a good uh, air seal on it because it will oxidize if it's exposed. Um, and then you want to stick it in a, a dark closet or in a cabinet. Uh, keep it out of direct sunlight because it'll oxidize through the UV as well. Okay. And then it'll, it'll keep forever. Um, I've drank some Dusties going back uh, eighteen late 1800s. Wow. Uh, in Scotland, I had a, a great experience. That's why I'm in this business. I was premiering a film in, in Edinburgh, Scotland, and happened to meet one of the, the leading writers of Scotch, a guy named Charlie McLean, and he took me under his wing. I did. I was I was trapped there because of the volcano in Iceland. I couldn't fly out. Just happened to be with the right guy. <laughs> trapped for <laughs> the right place. I got so, something for you. Yeah. So we landed in in Edinburgh, and the pilot came on. Goes, we're the last plane to fly uh, <clears throat> land in Northern Europe today, and you won't be going home tomorrow. And I was going to go in, premiere the film, fly out the next day, and it wasn't going to happen. So I got stuck. And the woman who organized this science festival said, well, 
my cousin's doing, my uncle actually is doing this tasting, real famous guy and scotch and, you know, I can get you in both his master classes. And I was a typical American in this scotch class, I will tell you. You know, I was like, oh, it's not bourbon. <laughs> but I tasted some amazing whiskeys, and then we went to dinner, killed a bottle of wine. Um, and then after dinner, it's about 1130, he goes, what are you doing for the rest of the night? I'm like, you know, typical American. I'm going to roll back to my hotel room and pass out, you know, because I had at least, you know, five, ten shots in his classes. There's two classes, five each. And then dinner and a bottle of wine, I'm, I'm done. He goes, no, no, you're going to come with me. And we jumped in his Land Cruiser, typical classic Scottish scene. You couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> written this better. We drive across and we go down to this old farmhouse. We walk in the kitchen. The table's 400 years old. The kitchen table's 400 years old. Wow. The house is probably built around the table. It's a humongous table. And um, he went in the back of the house and came out with these wooden boxes that had these Robitussin bottles in it, like, old time Robitussin yeah. kind of hexagonal bottles. Yeah. And he had Dissler going back in the 1800s. Wow. And it was from all the different distilleries around Scotland. And he shared that with me and we stayed up and he sat there and, and educated me that night. Drank, you drank a dram, you know, you t did a taste, you drank water, you did a taste, you drank water. I walked out of that place at seven o'clock in the morning sober. <laughs> wow. But my education on whiskey was just totally filled. I mean, it was excellent experience. And uh, that's what set the seeds for eventually why we're drinking this right here. Wow, that's phenomenal. So it was, yeah. great. It was a great, uh, great experience. Yeah, so. going back to winning the, the medal that you were talking about, what, when you submit a whiskey for judging, what are those judges looking for? in the tasting or whatever their process is to award those awards? The, the first thing they'll, they'll do is they'll look for faults. So faults would be too much heads, too much tails, um, something the distiller screwed up in the distillation process. What do you mean by the tails and the that's, faults? That's the tails where you, know, where you do the cuts, where yeah. the heads are above the good alcohol and the tails are below the, the good alcohol and proof-wise. Okay. You put too much heads in, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be um, – Alcohol for it's gonna you'll taste the the acetone you'll you go I know that that's 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 yeah, yeah. tastes like I, college yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, right yeah you know so they're looking for that they're looking that you put too much tails in so it's got a little watery funk to it you know some some people like funk in their whiskey judges don't like funk so you just don't you just don't do it you just stay away from it um, and then they're looking for the taste profile what's your grains what are your grains presenting. Um, the beauty of working with rice, which I can't believe, you know, American distillers are so xenophobic against rice. That's the wrong word. But, you know, they just have this problem with, with using rice and distillation. In fact, somebody on a, on, a, on a TikTok podcast the other day said rice is an unacceptable grain for whiskey. Well, I'd love to invite that guy here yeah. tonight and have him taste this because it's totally different. I mean, it, it's a great base for a whiskey. And you're fooling yourself. You know, when we do the distillation process, when you do the fermentation, which is the first step, you're converting the starches and those grains to sugar. It's, all, it's only a function of getting that sugar uh, out of those grains, converting the starch into sugar to introduce the yeast to convert it to alcohol. 
So there are, you are getting flavors that come across in the distillation process, but the whole idea of distillation is to distill to only that thing that you're looking for, which is ethanol. Um, and that ethanol will have those characteristics in it, but it doesn't really matter. You can take a, a rice whiskey, you could take a corn whiskey, you can take a, a weeded whiskey. There'll be slight variations in them, but one is not better over the other. They'll all taste good. Yeah. It's just they're just different sources of getting that starch. Hmm. And um, so we're lucky to have a great grain developed right here in California at the yeah. Cal Rose. Yep, absolutely. It's got, um, a high, it's got a high starch, and it, it works great. Can you tell the differences? Everyone sees you know, whiskey and bourbon, and you can tell bourbon. people the difference between what makes a bourbon and what's a whiskey. Sure. So all bourbon is whiskey. Right. Right. <laughs> But not all whiskeys are bourbon. Yeah. So bourbon was defined by the Congress at the uh, urging, of course, one state, Kentucky, uh, back in 1964, that it has to be distilled at 160 proof or below. So that means, you know, the all higher alcohol you don't collect. You can only collect from 160 and below. Um it has to go in, your distillate has to go into a new American oak barrel. Cooper's got their little part of that. Um, it has to be charred. Um, you can't go into that barrel uh, over 125 proof. Um, most smart distillers will, pr- will do in, uh, barrel entry proofs from like 100 to 110 because all you're going to have to do is add water to bring that proof down to bottle it. Why add water, which dilutes the flavors? Yeah. So if you start lower uh, proof, you're going to get more flavor. So if you're going to become a whiskey aficionado, always ask, what's your entry proof? You know, if they're up at 120, 125, you know, beam, wild turkey, all the big guys, because they're trying to shove as much alcohol into a barrel as possible, you're going to get that, that you know, uh, 2250 per handle price taste yeah. mm-hmm. it'll have that taste now i love beam and i love turkey yeah i'm not dissing them we all grew up on it but i'm saying if you're really looking for flavor you're going to look for somebody's putting a barrel entry proof that's between 100 up to about 115 mm. at the highest because then you're going to extra you're going to taste more of the barrel and like i said earlier most of the flavor comes from the barrel yeah. not from the distiller yeah, I would have never thought that going into it. I would have thought, you know, how to do with the ingredients and how you're doing it, but it makes sense how yeah. you explain it. Now, as you improve your tasting, you'll be able to taste the corn in your whiskey. You'll be able to taste the rye. You'll be able to recognize the weed if it's a weeder like uh, Maker's Mark. It has a yeah. very, uh, it's called a weeded bourbon. You have a very simple taste to that. You'll know it. Yeah, I'm a Maker's um, fan. That's good um, it's also a good whiskey start. Um, yeah. Basil Hayden, however, is a high rye bourbon, and it's different. You yeah, take those two, you is. put them side by side. <clears throat> you don't need to be a, a sommelier level taster yeah. to go. Okay, this one's this has got rye in it, and this one has wheat. Mm. Um, if you go to Scotch, you're going to get barley. You know that's all you're going to get. You, all you do is it's a barley ex- experience. If you go to Irish, which I really recommend people, you know. Get a couple bottles of Irish whiskey, and I'm not talking, you know, Jameson. I'm talking like <laughs> Red Breast or, or Teeling or one of the better distilleries because they use oats. And you will, you will be able to 
see the difference between oats and wheat and everything else. And it's really good stuff. I mean, uh, it's good to have that. You've got to exercise your palate. Yeah. If all you do is go home and drink your fifth of, of Jameson every week, that's what your palate's going to taste. Right. And, and that's not good. It's like eating, you know, a Danish every day, you know. Does the color of the bottle change anything? You're saying once it goes in the bottle, it's pretty much what it is. But I know, like, with beer, it, it does change the taste, darker yeah. bottles, et cetera. Is that a thing with the it, whiskey? It, or? It's, not a, it's not a big thing. It used to be a bigger thing in, a, in the past mm-hmm. to use a colored bottle until consumerism came in because you wanted to see the color of the whiskey. Yeah. Right? So the um, a lot of food regulations came from whiskey, believe it or not. So the first FDA Food Protection Act that came along, something called Bottle and Bond, which states that the whiskey has to be produced at the same distillery uh, over two seasons because they 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 do a they do a winter spring and they do a fall winter type of arrangement. Um, you have to go into uh, into the bottle at a hundred proof. That's the state hundred proof. And it can't have additives. You can't have caramels, and you can't have iodine, and all these things that people used to put in their whiskeys prior to, you know, enduring prohibition. After prohibition, this thing came out and said, this is called Bottle and Bond. It is the first food act in the United States because people were getting poisoned from iodine, shoe polish. Uh, they put coffee. They put all these different things in it to give the color of the bottle. At that point, where we used to put it in brown bottles, which was probably better for UV, um, they went ahead and you know went to clear bottles so the consumer can see, okay, that's the color of my whiskey. Yeah. Now, if you guys come tomorrow night, we're going to do our, uh, uh, unfortunately, listeners probably won't hear this in time, we're going to release our bourbon. And our bourbon is, we did a, a two, two-thirds full cask. Um, or of our bourbon, and it aged very uniquely. The whiskey is a very, very dark brown, and it's distinct. I mean, you look at it, well, that's different, you know, and that's why, you know, we'll put it in a clear bottle because we want you to go, oh, well, that's different. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that looks great. But in reality, we should do some type of blue blocking, UV blocking color on that glass to keep the whiskey from aging, but the consumers won't buy it. Sense. I see on the bottom of the bottle it says batch number and bottle number. Is that handwritten or is that printed out on the logo? That is handwritten. Wow. So every uh, bottle is handwritten, batch and bottle. and So everybody on the bottling line is a QC inspector. Okay. So they're looking for excessive char. Now, char does get in our barrels because we don't cold filter or chill filter, uh, which is an act where you cool down the whiskey really cold, and all the oils that are in that whiskey will coagulate. And then you skim off the, off the uh, whiskey. So your Jamesons, Jack Daniels, uh, Jim Beam, they all do cold filtration. Because, again, the consumer is expecting to look in their bottle not see any floaties. Mm-hmm. Craft distillers, we put floaties. I mean, that's our statement. I mean, we don't do this mass production stuff. These are each individually done. So our staff... When they're from the guy that's filling the bottle to corking the bottle to putting the labels on the bottle to hand labeling, they're all part of the QC process of looking and making sure that that whiskey's right, that there isn't something that shouldn't be in there floating around, or we didn't have excessive char. 
I mean, if we get a lot of char, we you know we got to stop and and redo it. And we we have a whole sequence of how we dump a barrel and we do a filter on it, a paper filter, uh, before it goes into our mixing tank, and that eliminates most of the char. Gotcha. Is there a significance of a snow goose as opposed to a white front or any other type of waterfowl? It's a great question. It was a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> well, it wasn't a hunter preference. There wasn't a poll taken and said, which one do you want on the label? The, um, the artist that did these labels, all our labels, is in Belgrade, Serbia. And I reached out. It was, it's, it's like It Work or one of the freelance websites. And I reached out and I said, look, I need an artist that can do a, a, a panel that reeks Autobahn, that looks at it. You know, that's an Autobahn label. Um, and then who would put all these little elements, the beaver in it, of course. And then any wildlife that's associated with that venue or that environment in that venue. And, um, she was great. I mean, she she nailed it. This was the first label she did for us, which oh, wow. was a snow goose. Ten out of ten. Yeah, yeah she did really good. Um, the problem is the war broke out in Ukraine, and we posted a, a post social media that we supported Ukraine, and she basically just won a rant on our Facebook, saying that we're full of we don't understand. They're you know not neo Nazis, and I'm like, she goes, if I could take back my artwork, I could. And I mean, we were keeping her busy. I mean, she was doing a label every four to six months, and uh, that relationship blew up, unfortunately. Wow. Um, so live so, in a very small world. So now yep. Mike's going to draw your next label for you? Yes. <laughs> you'll, Stick figures. You'll, you'll, you'll be able to notice those uh, those the renditions. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Hide the crayons. But, <laughs> and on your website, you've got a dedication to the Veteran Hunt Program as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what that says, just in a nutshell? Well, you know, we have to... <laughs> Good time for a drink of whiskey. There you go, <laughs> sir. I'll join you. I come from a four generations of servicemen. I've lived the experience as a dependent, as a serviceman, and as a veteran. And each stage is a little different, but you need the camaraderie. You need to have human interaction. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, my time in the Coast Guard was not combat. I mean, the, the most combat we faced was tourists at Waikiki. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, Probably uh, not all bad. No, it was yeah. all good. Yeah. I mean, Ron is uh, my roommate back in the day, and we have lots of stories, and maybe we could do another podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> After hours in the blind. <laughs> yeah. um, but my experience with PTSD came after my Coast Guard time. I got I worked for Skin Diver Magazine, and I handled the whole Pacific Basin for the magazine. And at that time, we were the 23rd highest lineage magazine in the world, in the, or at least in the United States. 
And lineage means the amount of ads that are in the in the book. So you'd pick up a Cosmopolitan magazine and a Skin Diver magazine and the same thickness, just to give you an idea. And our job was to go out there and promote dive tourism, help governments develop dive tourism, help the small business guy develop his business, work with the airlines to get tourists on the plane. And it was a very complex job. And I'd landed in uh, Yap. I used to go to Yap in Micronesia once a quarter. And I went into Yap, and the guy in Yap goes, uh, the, the operator said, hey, you know, there's this island called Nulu that no one's ever dove. And um, would you like to go see it? And I said, you know, you don't tell a diver, you know, we're going to go someplace never been dove. You don't want to go. So we jumped on this boat. It was a, it was a peace prize from the Japanese. It was a 53-foot, uh, I call it a Yoshi boat. They were, they were uh, kind of a very swept bow and, and uh, uh, fantail and kind of like in a big arc. And they were designed to throw nets. So the, the wheel in the pilot house is actually uh, parallel with the with the uh, uh, with the the bow and stern and not perpendicular like you would normally have. So you're driving from the side of the boat. And then this had a little hydraulic remote. And long story short, I play the harmonica and I was playing Gilligan's Island as we were going out <laughs> because it just was setting up. I thought this is it. You know, so we got on the, on the boat and I'll, I'll cut this story short and get back to the veteran. You're good. You're good. Um, I love it. So we get, we get out of this, out of this harbor and we start going towards Nulu. Now, Thor Heyerdahl, if you guys might remember, did this great journey on the Contiki to prove that, you know, Polynesians were moving everywhere. They're in South America, they're going through Polynesia, and they could hit these little specks of land all through the all through the, the Pacific. So I'm sitting there as a former Coast Guard quartermaster slash navigator going, I'm just going to watch this guy, you know, this captain's guys act together. I'm going to watch this because this is great because right now it looks like a shit show. And it turned into a shit show. We didn't realize <laughs> it. We were actually driving into a tropical storm. So when oh, we started at zero seas by the by 3 o'clock in the morning when we missed the island, and we had already turned back to try to get back to, yeah, uh, we were in 30-foot seas and, and probably 50-mile-an-hour winds. Oof. I mean, it was, and, and you know, I've done that in a 180-foot still boat, not a problem. You do it in a fiberglass boat, things get weird. But anyway, Captain wasn't all there in his head, getting on the boat to start with. He only brought machetes. That was part of the story as well. Um, but I'll kind of skip through it. I drove that boat for about two and a half hours with a knife at my throat. Oh, oh Because this guy was totally off his knocker. Oh, my God. And there's a bunch of other events, and I won't, it takes two hours and uh, probably this whole bottle of whiskey <laughs> to talk about. We got time. But, <laughs> so I came home, and basically, in, a, in my own little world, my own world view, could understand what my dad went through. Mm-hmm. We have to understand the veteran. And the only person who can truly understand the veteran is this guy like Mike. Absolutely. The fellowship, 
the engagement, getting people out of their hole. That's what got me out. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, excuse my language, you could hopefully beep that. Um, <laughs> We're going to keep that. <laughs> <laughs> right there with you. I was messed up for about four years. Okay. And I probably was not healed, never healed uh, from that event for probably another 10. And the farther away you get from it, the better. So would the veteran hunt program be great for somebody that just came back from combat? Not so sure. I agree. Yeah. But for the veteran who is 10, 15 years downrange from that event or events, um, they will be able to handle it. And that's when they need it the most. Absolutely. So, now, I, I think to your point – the very first hunt that we did, my dad's a Vietnam veteran, and he, I was a foolish young kid. I, mean, I think I was eight or nine and asked him right. some questions, and there wasn't much reply. But on our very first hunt, it was cool for me to sit back as a son and watch my dad talk to guys like Mike Yeah, because we heard none of it growing up, and that was cool. But, yeah, It's really important It's because talking about it gets you over it. I mean, it does. It doesn't get you over it, but it helps heal. Right. And it's really important. You know, that's why we're we're committed to support this program in any way we can uh, to keep it going, to make it bigger, make it more accessible, uh, to get more vets out there. Um, it's just super important. I, I'm super emotional about this, obviously. Well, I think it's life changing. You know, with there, there's just countless folks that we've met and it's just like they might not have been a duck hunter ever but just like going back to that camaraderie and like getting back in tune with the community yep. that part's life changing right you're going back in the outdoors positive experiences etc meeting people um that changes people's lives and yep. i know there's a ton of guys that we've met that are like that and you have yeah, the stories you, too yeah the, you, you deal with it the most now oh, all the yeah. time yeah it's and from an outsider looking in that doesn't know about the veteran hunt program, they look at it as an opportunity to take veterans hunting, right? But that's just, I mean, that's just icing the on the cake. That's, that's just right? what people that's see. The that's watch. it. It yeah. is so much more um, involvement internally uh, with guys like Chris, um, with veterans who have been there and done that, veterans that haven't been there and done that. But as a veteran, you've already been there and done that because you signed on the, on, the, on the dotted line, right? Um Getting together, shooting, being with your brothers and sisters who signed on that same dotted line, nobody will ever understand that other than somebody who has been through that. Yeah. And Chris, your emotions, I feel the same exact way. Um, it's There's just so much more to this entire veteran hunt program that I hold extremely close and dear to my heart because I know inside what it means to not just me, but even more so the guys that we surround, guys and gals that we surround ourselves with. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. And it's working. I know it's working. Yeah. Well, it helped my son. Good. Gave him something. It gave him an experience to anchor when he went on the next deployment. You know, it gives him something to, you know, positive to think about. Yeah. You know, um, it's, um, you know, hunting is cultural. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's everything. 
It's the time in the blinds, time in the house. It's getting ready, going, coming back, like you've said many times, Mike. Um, but, you know, people need those those anchors. Yeah, absolutely. Something to hang on to, something to look forward to, something to look back on, something to pull you out of those times when you are just knee-deep and you can't even talk to anybody or get it out what is wrong with you. But those times that were had in the blinder with your brothers and sisters is what you can lean on. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 This, uh, I say it often, and I think it gets misconstrued, but I will tell people that this veteran hunt program helps me while it helps others. But what I mean by that is it helps me internally networking with guys and gals and all of these people and staying connected in this service mindset that you're not alone. Right. And guys like yourself and other veterans out there, you're not alone. We are here for sure. If we don't talk about it, trust me, there's some way, shape, or form that we can get out into each other and be all right with that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what started out as like just giving people an opportunity to go hunting, it just went way beyond that and we weren't oh, yeah. really expecting that yeah you, know? you look at the numbers back when this started and it's like oh we got out 15 vets this year and now it's like oh we got out 800 veterans it's like in yeah. a <clears throat> time span of 10 years it's gone from 15 to 800 like what about another 10 years yeah, you know, yeah. you're gonna have three four thousand like yeah yeah and, and what's great about it is <clears throat> it's veterans running the program and reaching veterans where you know i'm not a veteran myself it you know, I've had a lot of great relationships with the folks, but there is a different bond between servicemen and women, you know, that Carson and I will never have. Um, and we're just super thankful for, obviously, Mike Kellogg and um, and the colonel, but just all of our veteran volunteer. I mean, they're they're out there all the weekends guiding other veterans. Yeah, and we want uh, to thank them for what they do. Yeah, because the program wouldn't be what it is today. It wouldn't keep growing. People wouldn't support it, but... It's just quality individuals that are not selfish and are there for the right reasons and know that they are making a difference in people's lives and bringing people into the fold. Yeah, the veterans, you know, the, your volunteers have been out there, you know, I've had three hunts, four hunts now yeah. uh, we've been engaged with. You know, these these volunteers are doing exceptional work. Yeah, you know. we, we think so. You no, know, they got to wake up, they got to drive. I mean, if they live in Sacramento. Yeah. You know, they got to drive up to the, you yeah. know, up to Princeton, you know, that's not a short drive at 3 a.m. No. in the morning. Yeah. You know, they got to do the hunt. They're looking at their watch because they want to get back to their family. They got a soccer game. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, we've used it pretty often, but the full circle thing within the veteran hunt program and most things veteran, but those guys are looking forward to that. They look forward to meeting up with new vets and networking with them. And there's been, lifelong relationships that have been established through the veteran hunt program. Yeah. Um, and those guys absolutely love to do it. I mean, they bug me. Hey, what do we got going on? I need to go. I yeah. need to go. Can we shoot mm-hmm. moon tomorrow? Right. Let's do this. Let's do that. Thank, like, thank you so much for helping. Like, no, thank you for letting me come <laughs> yeah. out. Thank you for letting me be a part of the program. <laughs> yeah. like, man, you've guided 20, you know, hunts. It's, but it's just back to that. People want to help people. Yeah. You know? And it's just yeah. trying to keep up with those guys. I mean, there's, we've probably got 14, 15, 16 of those guys. I wish I could name all of them, but they're just. But look at Mike Collins. In his, yeah. Is he yeah. 90 or in his. No, 80s? he's 83. 82. Okay. Yeah. Well, but I mean, he know, is. I got, I got a special spot in my heart for Mike. And... He's a go getter and he's on it. Yeah. You know? It's like, I hope his I'm rac- still hunting. Raccoon story with the ski pole sometime. Yeah. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah. 
We'll have to get him on here too. That he's would be a, good. No, he's, he's great. Good story. You know, he's got some challenges right now. He does. And yep. um, you know, if somebody can help, reach out, please, because he's, you know, he's facing some. Yeah, he's uh, gone through a lot of challenges uh, lately, and uh, he's been, one, a supporter for, of CWA for a very, very long time, but he's really gravitated towards the veteran stuff. And, you know, just talking to him, it's like it, it keeps him going. You know, it being does. involved yeah. in the program keeps him going. Yeah, yeah I get, you have to have something to get you out of bed. Exactly. You know, yep. and if you're an ex-Marine, you know, you know, it's 4.30 in the morning every day. Yeah. You know, those guys are, you know, I went through uh, Navy Dive School with – um, a group of recon rangers, and they are, you know, there's a bond there with those guys that I, I developed during that school. Very special people. Yeah, absolutely. It's good stuff. Yeah. Well, Chris, we appreciate you coming out today. Mike, Thanks. appreciate you coming back out. Thank you. I don't think I could have dreamed this podcast being any better talking to you guys and drinking whiskey at the same time. It was, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And Chris, we, we really appreciate the partnership. Um, and we're, we're happy to be a partner with you and just thank you for everything that you're doing for the veteran community. Yeah. Thank thank you you for letting me do that. Yeah. We appreciate it. Appreciate it. Truly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of save it for the blind podcast. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.